The talk this afternoon is on the last three of the seven factors of enlightenment, calm, concentration, and equanimity. I had a a teacher from India named Deepama that probably some of you have heard of. She was uh, known to be a third stage of enlightenment, which is meant that she was free of aversion and attachment. Uh, so her, um, they call they call someone like that. Like there's a fragrance, there's a nectar or smell of um, purity um, that was very palpable. It's, it's like we sometimes think that what we're doing can be often invisible, but it, it was very clear that it was really nice to be around her. You know, it was like, um, it, it was so inspiring because it felt like, wow, uh, here's this woman from India that uh, actually didn't have a lot going for her. I didn't, I won't go into her story, but... Um, that did this, you know. And um, one time I was paired up with her to teach a three-month retreat many years ago. Uh, and there was an interview, a group interview with her, and somebody asked her, um, what's your mind like? And she said, in my mind there are three things, concentration, loving-kindness, and peace. And this guy was so amazed. He said, is that all? (laughs) And she said, that's all. And and I think what was most amazing about her was that she wasn't satisfied with that stage of enlightenment. She wanted fourth stage of enlightenment. And uh, every afternoon after lunch, I would look across the uh, street. I was staying upstairs in this room and... It was, it was early winter, and I'd be, have done interviews all morning, and she'd have done interviews all morning where she was, and we'd eat lunch. And she had this little white sari on in the snow, and she'd be outside doing walking meditation. And I would go for a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and it was very powerful for me to look out the window and see this old woman who I felt like it would have been fine if she was resting on her laurels at that point. You know, but uh, I compared myself to her, but I really got, I didn't have the energy to do that yet, you know. And here she was, um, wanting to be totally free, but she still had work to do. There's a saying, the great way is easy for those who cease to cherish their preferences. It's a Zen saying. And um, I think this is a beautiful translation. It was by Richard Clark, the translation. And um, that ceasing to cherish preferences is the key part. You could, 
you could, it could have been translated ceasing to have preferences. In fact, it used to be more translated like that. But to cease to cherish preferences is so different. It, it's like, you know, when you see the mind go from being with something pleasant uh, to really wanting, wanting it to last. And, and um, rather than caught up, being caught up in judging that or getting thrown off into how to make that possible, but to really just accepting that the preference would be there to want it to last but to not get hooked in that, not get caught in it. Do you see the difference? It's like one is just allowing for the fact that of course we only would want it, but one wouldn't, one wouldn't get caught in that. You wouldn't suffer over that. The place that I um, feel like that became the most clear to me uh, some years ago at that point in time uh, was when I had a, a car accident and it was minor, it was very minor um, in some ways, but it was very profound in other ways. And I was heading to the airport very late, I think it was one or two in the morning. The plane had, uh, was supposed to arrive at like seven at night, very late, it was in Honolulu. And I was driving down the highway, and I hadn't listened to any news. And there were flash flood warnings, but I hadn't heard that there were flash flood warnings. Uh, In fact, I'd never been in one in a car. I didn't know what they were, so maybe it wouldn't have made much impact anyway if I had heard (laughs) that there were. Uh, So I'm I'm going along, and there's this uh, blinking big sign along the highway going, um, exit for the airport closed. And that was, that was sort of the beginning of, <laughs> like, something wasn't quite right. So e- exit closed. And I love how the mind, my mind, usually in these situations, will say, well, that, that doesn't pertain to me. <laughs> you know, denial, right? It's like, and, and then I'll try to find a way around it. So I'm driving along and another big flashing sign, airport exit closed. But I kept saying to myself, well, that can't pertain to me because I don't know how to... <laughs> navigate this if I don't take this exit. I didn't know that part of the city. So I kept still thinking, like, I even, I'm like, I'm the type of person who'll try to figure out how to go around the barricade and do this whole other thing, but you couldn't. I got there and I couldn't go around it, (laughs) so I had to keep going, take this way, I didn't know. And I was up on this crest of a bridge, and I almost texted a friend at one in the morning as I was driving. I thought, no, don't do that. But I was really lost. I was coming down over this hill into this huge intersection, really busy, you know, looking intersection, red light. I had a red light. And as I was going down the hill, I started hydroplaning. You know, the brakes... I mean, it wasn't like there was no, no traction. It wasn't like where I grew up where you could drive in the direction of the skid and snow. It was like nothing. The, the wheel just... The steering wheel just lost any ability to control anything. Um, and that was the time where I remembered this phrase. The great way is easy for those who cease to cherish their preferences, right? And it was the first time I saw how much... It was so clear I had a preference. 
I mean, how much clearer could it get that I had a preference for, the, for my light to be green <laughs> and not red, right? And I had another huge preference. There were several preferences. My first preference was for the light to be green. The second preference, which was much bigger, was this deep wish to not kill anybody, you know, to not harm anybody, to not crash into somebody. And then, of course, the third wish was not to crash, not for me to get hurt or to get killed. And, and yet I had no control. And I had so much time. I had so much time, an abundance of time. And you know how, how life can just open up in these circumstances. I had so much time to, like, contemplate that. And something, it was just like those seven factors of enlightenment just went through. And particularly when I realized that um, it was just a preference, that I hadn't, it was so clear that I had no control over the preference. And then what do you do? This is life. This is what the Buddha's teaching is, that life is moving so fast and that we have very little control over our preferences. And then what do we do? Well, we can, you know, mindfulness, investigation energy, joyful interest, rapture, that joyful, deep delight in the truth. But what I'm talking about today, because what happened for me at that point when I realized that there was nothing I could do, but it was very clear I had a preference for what I could have done, (laughs) if I could have, calm, concentration, and equanimity came. It was just like my whole system just relaxed. And then I went swirling through the intersection, round and round, crashed into this little curb and post office box, and it was fine. But for hours, I was in that state. It was just in this very deep, clear, equanimous place. It was so powerful because the insight was so powerful. So equanimity is sometimes called holy equanimity because it, it, it's like, it's true peace. It's, 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 we all want nonviolence. We all want peace. And yet, we don't understand what it could really mean in this world. And that it's that unconditional acceptance, not a conditional acceptance of how things are, without conditions. So, of course, that would mean that we would see that we have... Of course, we would have a preference for no suffering in the, in the world, right? Of course we do. And yet that isn't how it is. So just to remember that in turn, I'm not going to go through the whole sequence of the seven factors, but as we left the last talk, joyful interest or that deep delight in the truth of how things are. Rapture um, opens up energy in the body and the mind. And so there's, um, there's a way in which, as I said at the end of the talk, um, we can use that energy to get more deeply immersed in how things are rather than get lost in using up the energy, right, by fixing something that needs fixing or figuring something out intellectually or, 
you know, that excitement, that it, the over-exuberance, the over-enthusiasm. Um, we might be trying to uh, tell somebody that we know about the practice, you know, whatever it is. It's like um, writing a book. <laughs> Who knows what it is? <laughs> we all have our things that we do. That, Like I said the other day, it's like energy filling up a balloon. There's a tendency to put a pin in the balloon and let it kind of go back to normal or familiar rather than use that energy to go deeper into the unknown, which is every moment. <laughs> so, if, so we can allow this to happen naturally. We go through this process again and again and again where we have energy open up and then we tend to get thrown off. Or sometimes we'll be able to kind of shift in. And that's why there are the tranquilizing factors after, the calm, the concentration, the equanimity. This will happen naturally. And of course, it's never going to be as visible or always in sequence as this. The Buddha described the calm as like if you went from the hot sun like if you've been in the hot sun a really long time, and then you go into the shade, the cool shade. Again, when when you consider the... um, the energy that's coming from the investigation, the energy, <laughs> the rapture. It's like this, this allows us to have the energy to touch the truth more directly, more deeply, and sustaining that for a while. So we might, maybe we sustain that for one mind moment two weeks ago. Maybe we can sustain it longer now. Not, I don't mean all day. <laughs> I mean, you know, it might be once a day that that lasts longer. Um, or we might do that once every three or four days. It just, it just depends. We need so much protection. You know, you, you can see how the, everything sort of gets quiet, comes together, and then maybe the slightest thing will throw us off. And it, it just it takes that practice of whatever that slightest thing is is where we need work practice to be free. So this deeper immersion that I'm referring to that I'm going to talk about a little more <laughs> in a minute, this deeper immersion isn't going through the thought process. And I don't have time tonight, just later this afternoon, this now, to talk about the concentration in depth for a long time, but just to talk about it a little bit, a little bit more. We've talked a lot about vitaka, vichara, and these are concentration factors, or they're called jhanic factors. And they're, they're the same factors whether you're doing uh, fixed concentration, the samatha practice that Sayadaw has been referring to, 
or momentary concentration, what we do in Vipassana practice. So the jhanak factors are the same. Uh, So that ability to aim the attention or connect the attention with something, with an object, whether it's knowing or hearing or smelling, whatever, whatever this distracted attention uh, comes together and connect with something rather than being lost in thought, rather than being distracted, lost in thought. If you can sustain that, it's vichara. So that like if you can sustain that through part of the rising movement or through part of the lifting movement or through part of a sound, it's that practice of sustaining with something directly rather than pulling out and thinking about it. It might last five seconds, and then we pull out, think about it, drop back in. That's, the, that's that feeling of immersion that's different than just um, being distracted. So, um, as you go through these jhanic factors, and again, this will be brief, PT, rapture, is the third one. And that's why I'm also bringing it up. It will feel like, it just feels like you're more deeply immersed. So, for example, they say that vitaka is like if you take this striker, and it's that taking the striker and being able to hit the bell, aim it, connect it. That's the first one, first factor of concentration touching it. But then it's vichara that, that is that the whole length of the sound of the bell. Very different, yeah? So you can see that one is, is more immersed, it's, it's being sustained, and of course at any point <laughs> it can stop, but that, that is that ability to stay with something for a while. But it's changing. You can see that it's changing. And then with PT, the rapture, it'll feel like you're not just kind of aiming, sustaining, or connecting, sustaining. There's some interest in it. That's what's different. It's like you're not just kind of synchronizing the attention with what's happening um, or being concurrent. You're actually interested in what it is that's happening very different, which then allows us to kind of go in deeper, more sustain the attention so that they feed each other. Uh, And the next two, um, sukha and ikagata, Uh, sukha is like a, a sweet happiness, and ikagata is tranquility. Um... They say at Sukha that this, this experience of duality, of, of subject and object being separate, come together. Because you sustain the attention long enough. And the tranquility is um, often... It's, it's coming from not being distracted for so long. You know, this is lasting a bit longer. This could last maybe three seconds, five seconds, a minute, but as as this lasts longer, as this concentration lasts a bit longer and longer, it it just, you just won't be pulled out by restlessness or pulled out by um, 
attachment. It, you'll feel much more protected, much more contained. Another way to say this when, when these are happening with Vipassana practice is that um, you'll feel like you're understanding what's happening from the inside of it rather than looking at it from the outside and trying to understand it from the outside. There's a a great saying by a teacher named Mayababa that was from India and came to the United States. And he said that um, when two people are angry with each other, they tend to yell or speak very loudly because they feel so separate from each other. And then when two people are deeply in love, they tend to whisper or not to need any words at all. Uh, And what one finds in these deeper, you know, as you start getting more deeply immersed in these jhanic factors, that it, it becomes like less need for words. You feel so deeply connected with, with everything. And you feel closer to a hidden wholeness. There's more of a sense of a closeness to a completion. And you know these great examples of like, even a dew drop in the a dew drop in the grass can reflect the whole universe. It's like that when there's that deep tranquility, and you know the the sweetness or the happiness can disappear. There's just that even tranquility, um, but that the hidden wholeness is there, and that everything in the universe can be reflected there. And of course you can see that all of the factors of enlightenment allow that process to just deepen. So say, you know, you're, you're really in this deep, quiet place and you feel like you've been really mindful and equanimous and then equanimity goes. The unconditional acceptance shifts to, wait a minute, that's not okay. You know, it's like, no, that's not okay. You know, it's just like, it just, that can happen in a second. And it's just some, some factor has gone. Maybe energy went, or maybe calm went, or, you know, it's, it's okay. It's just that impersonal, that changeable. Or maybe on the other hand, we've tasted a glimpse of this wholeness, you know, this peace, and, uh, we want it back. And maybe, maybe there's a few of those factors there, but not all of them. It just, what I love about this process is that it's foolproof. You know, you can't fake it. If equanimity isn't there, it isn't there. It's okay. You know, it just, it just isn't there. One of the things I in some ways admire about equanimity is that you can't fake it. 
In fact, all the other factors of enlightenment, you can kind of tweak them here and there. Um, but, but equanimity is like um, an apple ripening on a tree. It, it ripens, it ripens for all of us, for all of us. It's equally elusive. A teacher from India, Sri Nazargadatta, said, You seem to want instant insight, forgetting that the instant is always preceded by long preparation. The fruit falls suddenly, but the ripening takes time. You know, and we know that a retreat is not that easy. You know, we know that it isn't. It's hard work, and yet we know that a retreat, a longer retreat, is what ripens equanimity. It's just, that's how it happens. You go through the same stuff over and over and over, and maybe that cherishing our preferences becomes so clear that it's so painful. You start being shifting to impartiality. Not indifference, but impartiality. So you see that if you relate to sleepiness the same way you relate to happiness, that you'll suffer less. It's just, it's just um, you learn it, you keep learning it, that it's not worth, you know, they, it, the great way is really nothing is worth clinging to. You find that out because it's not that, of course, of course it makes sense to, but you re- recognize that it's the clinging that's the suffering. So the experience that seems so much like equanimity, this peace, this nonviolence, but isn't, is indifference. In equanimity, the heart is open, it's connected, it cares. In indifference, the heart it's, you know, it's like, whatever, I don't care. <laughs> you know, it's or like denial, denying anything that's happening that is happening. Passivity, not taking action when action needs to be taken. Naivete. Insensitivity, because the heart's closed. There's there's an insensitivity, dissociation. And it can look so equanimous, yeah? And of course, the opposite of equanimity is reacting with aversion and attachment. It's reacting to the appearance of pain, unpleasantness with the fear or the pushing away, the withdrawing, or the pushing away. And it's reacting to the pleasant passing with wanting it to last, holding on. So as we can taste when it happens, when we get these glimpses of this, we feel so protected. 
because we really can explore. You know, there is enough, enough impartiality as, as we're with the flow of moment-to-moment experience that when, say, we sense that we're going deeper and expectation happens, that there's enough mindfulness and equanimity to, to go, oh, expectation, <laughs> and be interested in it rather than get caught in it. And we can drop into the experience of the expectation rather than the resistance. But say, say we're like expectation and then we're like, it's okay, it's okay, expectation's okay. And then there's another voice that's like, no it isn't, <laughs> right? No it isn't. And the other part's going, yes it is, no it isn't, yes it is. That's not quite unconditional, right? So if that's what's happening, see, we, we, we so want the unconditional acceptance to happen that we have a harder time facing the resistance. The more you taste this holy equanimity, sometimes the harder it is to be with the resistance. It hurts. But then if you can actually be honest with it, and it's all dependent, it's not your fault, it's, it, we can't make it happen. If it's gone, it's gone. And there will always be a bittersweet quality to that. It's like that. there's a certain um, happiness that has come from that protection. And then we know we're not as protected. And then I usually will say, oh, okay, it's okay that it's not okay. You know, it's just like being able, even though that sounds... Um, <laughs> almost like impossible. It is possible to start. It's I call it, it. It's not. It actually isn't true that you can have no. You can have equanimity with having no equanimity, but you can almost. Technically, it wouldn't be correct, but it, actually, it will feel like it. It'll be like you open up and you'll just be like, <laughs> okay, resistance. And then you can catch... What I love about this practice is that you can always recover it. It's like if the equanimity comes back enough and you go, oh, no it isn't, is okay. You're back in the flow. You see, there's nothing wrong with no, it's, no it isn't. There's nothing wrong with no. It's that we um, don't accept it. There's a... Um, show I saw in television once, a public television show, that um, this artist had decided to make her own tightrope and learn how to walk on a tightrope. And she went um, to these old shipyards uh, north of Boston, where Boston, Massachusetts, where they still, some of these places at that point in time were still making their own rope. So she learned how to make her own rope. And then, you know, she filmed herself learning all this, and she filmed herself learning how to walk on a tightrope. And that part I found so much like the practice. It's like, when you learn to walk on a tightrope, what you could observe in watching her was that being in balance was allowing yourself to always be out of balance. You never, you, you know, when you see, when you saw her learning to do it, and the better she got, the more okay she was accepting that she was never going to be in balance. 
That's how she kept balance. And that's just how this is. It never stays the same for a moment. And it's like that acceptance, that the balance, it's like what I'm trying to describe is happening so much where we're with something and then, you know, we're not able to be with it and that not being able to be with it, if we can be okay with it, that's being in the moment. That's what's predominant. (laughs) And it just, you know, I can't tell you how long it took me to get that that's what being in the present moment was a lot of the time. Oh, oh, (laughs) resistance. You don't have to call it resistance. I like to just notice the no. (laughs) You know, it's like a lot, you know, sometimes we're going, yes, that's the unconditional acceptance. But a lot of the time it's like, no. And then, okay, no, okay, be with it. Just see if you can start to be with that. Another way to say that being out of balance is vipassana. It's like being receptive to the changing nature of how things are. You know that sound that just happened? For me, it's so pleasant. And when I compare it to the loudspeaker, you know, where it's not just, like, it's not my least favorite. You see, here I am sharing my preference, but it's not so bad when it's Burmese music and Burmese, you know, language. But when it shifts into, like, a song that I recognize that is being just... I don't know how to say it. It just doesn't sound like it should. <laughs> That's a nice way to say it. And you know, <laughs> it's just so much fun to watch that. Like, wow, you know. Last night, I'm up in this place where the acoustics are super good, and you know, I just like, and I, I've been sick, and I was like, oh, what is this? And it's like, oh, my ear door hurts. Ouch. Oh, ouch. Oh, oh, okay. You see, it took a while for me to go, oh, that's just really unpleasant, you know? Okay. (coughs) There was one year, I just have to say, you're lucky. There was one year that it was so endless, like day and night, day and night. And um, again, the acoustics are really good up there. And I, I had to learn to kind of find a way to practice with it. And I don't know if you can, st- I don't think you still hear it, but in those days you could hear like them put the needle on the record and then, you know, the song would play and then <laughs> there'd be this slight pause. You'd hear the end and then there'd be this pause and I would have all this hope. Like, you know, it would be like three in the morning. <laughs> And then, like, you'd hear that, like, you'd hear the needle go on, it would be hopelessness. And then, like, day after day of hope, hopelessness, hope, hopelessness. And finally, you know, you get equanimity, right? It was a practice. Like, once I realized, oh, I can actually learn something from it. And then it's just hearing. And, you know, it's like when we first got here, 
I am convinced that they have a new a new sound system right below Chaswa, like it never was here before. Now, I don't know if that's true, but the first night I was here, I was like, oh no, it was so loud. <laughs> but, you know, it didn't go for a really long time, and now it's back. But to me, it always seems like the, the community waits for a while. I think what happens is that they're used to doing this all the time and they actually try to behave themselves while they're here. They try not to do it and then we're almost done. They probably just want to play music. And you can feel gratitude that they've, they've been waiting. <laughs> and they're probably, you know what I really think they're thinking? Well, those guys are probably equanimous enough. They've been here long enough. They can deal with it now. <laughs> I don't know for sure. So connected, the attention connected, but not drowning. Connected, but not lost. So it really that, the whole thing of that it's just hearing. It's just sadness. It's just knee pain. It's just tiredness. It's just my karmic knot, <laughs> my karmic knot, whatever it is. It's like, it's just learning how, if just, if just doesn't work for you, but it, it is that simplicity that is so helpful. It's so clear. It's just thinking. And again, we, tr- we make it so complicated, but it isn't. It's the aversion and the attachment that's overwhelming. Really, if you ever look at when you feel overwhelmed, it's not the sound. It's the dislike of the sound and then not being able to be mindful of the predominant experience, which is dislike, not the sound. And then if, the, if we're not able to be with that predominant experience of dislike, it, shift, it shifts to irritation or frustration and then fear or aversion, anger. Yeah, it just like it just moves into that direction. And the same with pleasant. You'll start to see the cherishing of the preference. Liking, pretty workable liking. <laughs> you know, enjoyment. Still we can go enjoyment, enjoyment, not my enjoyment, not my enjoyment. But when it starts shifting to clinging, craving, addiction, it becomes very hard. And it really is just craving. It's just craving. It's not ours. I was at a retreat teaching in um, New Mexico at a wilderness place. Um, And this place, the um, kitchen and the dining room and the meditation hall are all connected. So you can hear the kitchen noises, you know, people talking or cooking pretty easily. And they try to cook mostly when we're not meditating, but it has to overlap. And then there's a porch right next to where you're meditating, where if anybody walks in the porch, it's really loud. And there's kind of an ethic there that you shouldn't walk in the porch when people are meditating. And then there's a gra- there's gravel that makes a lot of sound if, if people are walking on the gravel. And it's the same thing. If, there, if it really needs to happen, a staff person will walk through there. But there is an, an assumed ethic that 
okay once or twice, but it's not something that you're supposed to be doing the whole time people are meditating. So after you're there for a while, even if you're new, you start to get used to what it's mostly supposed to be. Mostly the kitchen isn't supposed to be too noisy. Mostly somebody is especially not supposed to be walking on the porch. And one day after lunch, we're doing that after lunch sitting, which of course everyone's more tired and a little more irritable. And um, you hear this thump, 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 the whole sitting. Thump, 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 And you can just feel the room. You know, like everyone's trying, and you know, you, it's almost like this black cloud was over everybody, you know, and you could just feel murderous rage building up, you know. It was incredible. It never stopped. And I was going, what? You know, I was trying to figure out who to blame. You know, I was, that's where I was going, like, who can we blame here? You know, because, you know, as a teacher, you feel this responsibility for not making it so hard that people can't work with it, right? And everybody was over the edge. And then I rang the bell, and we all started to go out. And the person who runs this place has this dog. And um, the dog hadn't been fed that day. And he greeted us. He had his bowl in his mouth. (laughs) It was like completely, utterly adorable. And its tail was wagging. And we're all going out silently, looking like, you know, we're ready to kill somebody. And it's the dog, hungry, wanting to be fed. So it had been walking up and down the porch with its bowl in its mouth. (laughs) The projection that was going on, and all it was, was this dog, right? And so this is what we have to, we learn this again and again and again. That when something is unpleasant, we tend to blame ourselves, or we tend to blame something else, or we blame God, or whatever. Like It's like that, that inability to just go, oh, unpleasant, let me see if I can be with this. Whether it can be a sound, but then we, we want to be with the sound, but really it's already shifted to the reaction. And that's the harder work. And it takes enough quiet to get interested in it, right? It's even hard enough if we have the quiet to be interested in. But this is, again, I want to emphasize, this is where the Buddha taught you can get free. It's very powerful. Because when we think that something is mine or something is yours, you know, it's like we get all caught up in, you know, either trying to fix it, get rid of it, Trying to, we're trying to do something with it. You know, we're trying to do something with the aversion. We're trying to do something with the sadness. We're trying to do something with the loneliness. Loneliness is a great place to explore. Because it's so easy, in a way, to see the thought patterns where we're trying to do something with it, rather than just to be with it. Maybe the clearest emotion, you know, we're where we're caught up in some kind of missing or, you know, date or whatever it is, you know. (laughs) So I want to just remind us all again, like the choice here, the freedom 
the freedom is being able to be kind. So when the loneliness or whatever appears, the aversion, the indifference, it doesn't matter what it is, but the freedom or choice is, is to be kind toward what's appearing and then to be able to not get caught up in believing the thoughts about it. But coming in, not getting caught in the object of the mind state. And I mean this in terms of expectation or anticipation with very deep, deep practice or something, a full-blown fear attack. It's the same thing. You pull the projection back and see if you can be with the body sensations. You ground the attention with body sensations. You go back to the anchor. You go to the body sensations. You go back to the anchor. Um, And then all the time, you might be once in a while noting fear, fear or loneliness, loneliness. It's an art. Uh, Greg mentioned the happy Sayadaw, Myatong Sayadaw, up downriver, who's turning 97. And um, when I saw him, the first time I saw him this time, or the second, he said, um, you know, we were talking about his age. <laughs> that, you know, just the fact that he was having a birthday, giving everything away on his 97th birthday. <laughs> he said, uh, it's so simple. He said, old age is suffering. <laughs> it's just, it's anything he says is like that. It's like, you know, old age is suffering. <laughs> One time a friend of mine came with me to see him and she asked him, um, do you ever get angry? This was some years ago. And again, he gets very serious and he'll, think, he'll say something and he said, oh, I get angry when I feel misunderstood. And then I note it. <laughs> and it's gone. <laughs> you know, it's just like great. And this is this is the difference. You'll start to see someone who has managed to bring these into their being. Yeah, the stuff happens, but there's a recovery time. There's more of a recovery time with getting, oh, I can be with this, rather than keep getting more and more caught up in it. One time I was, um, it was when my back really went out badly for the first time in 1979. Um, and I went on this little retreat where I was working at the time at a meditation center, and there was a monk from Sri Lanka named Sivali, Bhante Sivali. And he died two weeks after this interview I had with him. Um, so I went in to see him. And I was very young. He was very old. Uh, and I, I was in so much physical pain. And I, I sat down and I started describing just this horrendous physical pain. And he looked at me with the most loving eyes, just the most loving eyes, and he said, oh, the body's hopeless. Big smile. Not like, ha-ha, but just the big smile, very serene, oh, the body's hopeless. Total acceptance. 
you know, and I thought at that point in my life that my back would probably be a problem for a while. And, you know, and in some ways it would come and go and come and go, but it taught me the most about this unconditional acceptance because when it would come back, it would be the litmus test. Like, did I think I got rid of it? Or am I, am I willing to work with it? My deepest teacher. It's a big question, what is freedom? I just wanted to bring up something that I haven't described yet because I've described in terms of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral and how they're rolling along moment by moment, mental feeling. Consciousness has a pleasant, unpleasant or neutral feeling moment by moment. Um, So I've described that how if we're not mindful of unpleasant, how it can lead to dislike or pleasant to like, and then how extreme it can get. Um, But with neutral, with neutral, when we disconnect from that, or um, it can go to boredom, and then to confusion, to indifference, and indecisiveness. So so each one will have a way in which it rolls along, and I just didn't want (laughs) to forget that one. It's so neutral, sometimes I don't put it in. But it's very important how the neutral can, can shift to boredom. And then we can get confused, indifferent, indecisive. So one, one more thing that I want to describe in terms of our practice is when I describe saying of course to something, it isn't a drowning. It's more of a. It's it's like a. It's a, a an attempt to bring about an acceptance. So if so if anxiety comes, it's a it's a kind of language. An emotion is a kind of language. And when you say, "Oh, of course, anxiety is appearing," it doesn't mean that then you're a doormat. It it just means that it it's it's the agreement with it is saying, yes, you're here right now. It's okay. And then there's the possibility to have a choice there to be kind, to explore it, or if we can't do any of that, to move away from it. So please remember, moving away to the anchor is why we learn to have an anchor. It's a protection. It's a, it's a protection. It's a, instead of taking a holiday, getting lost in fantasy, you, you learn how to protect yourself as best you can with something that isn't as painful or pleasurable. You find something a little more neutral that can hold the attention, even if it's the bottom of the feet, the hands, the breath hands, you're using the anchor at that point not as a, as a mindfulness object, but as a, as a real anchor, as a ground. 
And sometimes I see it as like the same thing as like if you went to the top of a mountain or flew up like a bird. The anchor is meant to give you perspective and space. You go to it, you kind of see it all from a distance. You, come, you can go back and forth to knee pain, back pain, whatever physical pain's happening or emotional and mental. You either keep a relationship up with the anchor so you don't get pulled in like quicksand or you just keep going to the anchor. This does not mean that the attention won't get called to the thing that's more intense. That doesn't matter. It gets called to the thing that's more intense and you come back to the anchor. It's a training. You're training your mind to to anchor with something that isn't something you're drowning in. It's healthy. It's not a defeat. It's not a failure. It's skillful. And that rests, that rests the mind, it rests the heart, so that, again, you have enough energy at some point to be with the next thing, <laughs> whatever it is. Oh yeah, there's one more thing I might want to... Might as well do this. Um, When I first sat with Sayada Upandita, it was a three-month retreat in 1984, um, and I'd never been to Asia And it was the first time I just was in this long retreat where every night, he was giving his talks at night, uh, at the end. I didn't know it was something they all did, which, at least here, (laughs) is they, you know, when Saito says, and may you all attain Magapala, you know, the peace of Nibbana and all that. And um, I'd never heard it so consistently. And it used to drive me crazy. Like, it would bring up all this striving for me. And so I thought it was my duty to tell Upandita that, if you can imagine. He'd been a monk since he was seven years old here. I mean, it was the first time in America. I don't think he'd ever been questioned, never mind told not to say something so significant. I don't know if you can imagine what a shock it must have been to him. But I was just thinking, oh, okay, women, 1984, got to tell him, got to inform him, you know, got to let him know what's really happening. <laughs> so this was about two weeks into the retreat. Plus, I could really see all my friends. And there were 20 of us there. They were all diving down every time he said it. And I thought, well, you know, it, you know I was helping everybody to tell him not to do <laughs> So I went in and I said, and I, st- I said, by the way, <laughs> I wish the translator hadn't translated it. By the way, you know that thing you say every night, you know, about Nibbana, you know, don't say it. It's not helpful. <laughs> it really didn't get us off on the right foot for years. Um, but I really, I really meant it. <laughs> Because I felt like, oh, every time I hear that, I just feel like I'm, my practice isn't good enough, and I would start striving, and 
You know, and it's like, you know what I mean, right? Or like, I don't know if, if that bothers you. There might be something else. But when he starts talking about, you know, seeing the intention, you know, and then like, that that's the cause, and then <laughs> noticing the movement of the foot, and then the the air element, vayudatu, is the effect, and then the air element is also the cause for the observing mind to appear. You know how he goes on and on for, for that, like 45 minutes. You know, again, I don't think we're used to that, like, so consistently and so for so long. So that, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be that he says it at the end, but there is a way in which it's so pure. I love it. So, I'm, But there, are, there is a way in which it would bring up that I wasn't good enough, that I was, you know, that somehow I should be seeing that all day. I hadn't practiced in that style so intensely, and I would go down and down and down and feel like I was failing and no good, and then go down and down and down. And that's when I discovered that if I just did the best I could for a few minutes looking that way, and then let it go, and then whenever there was some interest in that, I would look in that way again, rather than trying to force it. It was a complete shift in my practice. And it was great, because it, there, I was learning so much about that, but without force and, and pushing. Uh, so I just want to encourage you, like... Um, Nibbana is really something you fall into, and you fall into it from equanimity. And there, there is an there's an inevitability to that as the as the equanimity ripens. And really, I want to say again, it could be like the story about poor Ananda, who was the Buddha's, you know, the person who remembered everything he said and he was at that council where everybody was fully enlightened right and you know here's poor Ananda they're not going to let him into the meeting can you imagine how pain that's awful (laughs) sorry buddy you're not allowed in you're not fully enlightened and then you know he's practicing hard and then he goes to lay down I love this story it's when he's lying down that he's like finally something relaxes enough You know, it's just like we need, it's like you can't do it from push, but you can't do it from sleep. It's that, it's that balance of relaxation, interest, acceptance. It's like, and that, that takes so much protection to learn. It's like we're learning, we're learning, we're learning. Uh, and it takes going through the same places again and again and again until we kind of learn how to be that accepting, mindful, courageous through it. One of the things I really love about Sayadaw's talks is, Sayadaw Ulakana, is the way he keeps saying, you know, this is inevitable. If you keep doing this, if you, you know, it's just like, just um, do the best you can and... uh, Understanding that, that you make, you incline the mind toward the mindfulness, you incline the mind toward the um, kindness, and then you do the best you can. And as you all know, the practice will, the Dhamma does the work, the Dhamma does the work, we just get out of the way.
there was a famous monk from Thailand, Ajahn Mun, who had a dear friend, Luang Pu, a very accomplished monk. And there was a, a, a bhikkhu monk that had gone all around tri- Thailand trying to find a monastery to stay at, but um, nobody wanted him. I don't, it never said really what his behavior was that wasn't acceptable, but Luang Pu's was his last try. And he said, uh, whatever a monk is like, as far as I'm concerned, he's welcome to dwell there. As for me, I dwell with knowing. So he, I mean, it's so beautiful. He's saying, whatever's going on, I dwell in knowing. You know, whatever a person's doing, you know, they can dwell near me because I dwell in knowing. And then he clarified it. Somebody then said to him, well, what is, could you explain what dwelling with knowing is like? And he said, knowing is the normality of mind. Knowing is the normality of mind that's empty, bright, pure, that has stopped fabricating, stopped searching, stopped all mental motions, having nothing, not attached to anything at all. So I'll say that again. Knowing is the normality of mind that's empty, bright, pure, that has stopped fabricating, stopped searching, stopped all mental motions, having nothing, not attached to anything at all. And just keep doing your practice. It's like you're all doing really well. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.